Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 128. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are riding again with the Apple Dumpling Gang. Words I never thought I would hear you say. Here to talk about the 1979 sequel. Now, last week, I will go so far as to say, we gave the first film glowing reviews. I think that's accurate. So I, I don't want to bury the lead, but I was cautiously optimistic when it came to watching and discussing this film. Because the question we ask then, and it's going to get answered tonight, is was it necessary? Well, apparently Disney thought so, because as we mentioned last week, they put a lot of eggs into the apple dumpling basket. Yes, but sometimes you can put too many eggs into a basket, (laughs) and I think ultimately that is what we are here to discuss. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms and more. Listeners of Monoreal can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy and search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co. for all of your straw charm needs. We learn that Army supplies, mostly weapons, are going missing from Fort Concho at a rapid pace. Meanwhile, Amos and Theodore, tired of being farmers, arrive in Junction City, a boomtown offering prosperity. After purchasing new clothes, they decide to go to a photographer to have their pictures taken, of course, for the history books. But their donkey, Clarice, destroys the studio, drawing unwanted attention to themselves. We learn that Marshall Hitchcock has a stranglehold on the town, and Amos and Theodore do everything possible to try and not cross him. After going to the bank to deposit some of their money, the boys end up unknowingly in the middle of a bank robbery and get confused for the actual bank robbers and quote-unquote outgun Hitchcock leading to his humiliation. The photographer shows Hitchcock the photo of the Apple Dumpling Gang that he had taken earlier in the day, so Hitchcock sets off to find them. Amos and Theodore try to return the money um, that was left with Clarice by the actual bank robbers because apparently they took too much and couldn't carry it all home, but they accidentally injure Hitchcock again, causing further humiliation. They jump in a covered wagon to hide, but are instead brought to Fort Concho by an unaware Private Reed and Millie Gaskell, the Major's daughter, who is also the fiancé of one of the soldiers on the base. Hitchcock, meanwhile, follows Clarice as he is sure that she will lead him to Amos and Theodore. Upon being discovered, Amos and Theodore are enlisted in the army. After being caught stealing evidence in regards to the aforementioned stolen weapons, Private Reed is also locked up. After Clarice leads Hitchcock to the fort, he begins to open fire on Amos and Theodore, but is subdued by the other soldiers. Following a comedy of errors, the fort is destroyed. Reed escapes with Millie as his captive. Hitchcock is committed. Major Gaskell is relieved of his duties. And the Apple Dumpling Gang is placed in a military jail. Like A lot happens really, really fast. Meanwhile, Reed confirms to Millie that he is involved with the stolen arms 
but he doesn't elaborate on his role. We learn that his name is actually Captain Phillips, and he is investigating the crimes at the base. In jail, the Apple Dumpling Gang have a sterling reputation for having bested Hitchcock, which Amos and Theodore wish to uphold. So upon hearing that Big Mac is the number one person at the jail, uh, they say that they wish to speak to him immediately. They learn that Mac has set up a hiding place with some other criminals underneath the quote-unquote jail, which is actually just a front, and that they are planning to rob a train, which Amos and Theodore are then recruited to partake in after he hears that they are the Apple Tumpling Gang uh, that legend has just followed since they got into this jail. We also learn that there is an outside man that is feeding Mac information. Amos and Theodore want nothing to do with the robbery, as they want to stay legit, and they dress up as dancing girls at a bar to disguise themselves. They best Hitchcock again and escape out of the back, and they board the train to escape Mac, but his men board the train that they are already on, And now they are trapped. They didn't know that this was the train that was going to get robbed. On the train, Phillips tells Missy that he is working undercover to expose who is behind the arms theft and that he also plans on marrying her. It turns out that Jim Ravencroft, Millie's actual fiancé and the man assigned to take over for Major Gaskill, is the outside man. Amos, Theodore, and Phillips eventually stop the robbery, leading to the arrest of Ravencroft, Mac, and his men, and Amos and Theodore, now free, return to Donovan's farm. So, this movie has a runtime of, I think, an hour and 40 minutes. No, actually, it's even less than that. I think it's under 90 minutes. And so, when this seems like this plot is a little disjointed, and there's an awful lot going on, it's because they're trying to really stuff an awful lot into a very small window. And with the amount of twists and turns that they try to throw at you here, as you watch it, it is as janky as it sounds. You are correct. The running time is an hour and 28 minutes. At, at an hour and 40 minutes, this might have worked. It doesn't work at an hour 28. Yes and no, because to me, it feels like three different films, and I actually think it drags in some places. Oh, it yes. It does drag because I feel like they, for the sake of comedy at times, I felt like they sort of focused in on unnecessary scenes that were genuinely unfunny and I felt like they kept trying to make it funny and that's why it feels like it takes forever. I will agree with you. I do feel like we're watching three different movies. I almost feel like you took three made-for-TV shorts, something that was like meant to be a miniseries and you just crammed it into a feature-length film, if that makes sense. Right, but it's not nearly as bad. We had discussed Kronk's New Groove fairly recently, and that definitely feels like two separate shorts that were woven together by a common thread. This 
still feels like it belongs in the same movie. And what I think that they were very smart about here is that they did take it out of the town. The movie overall, I think, feels more like a traditional Western and more of what I was expecting the original to be. But because the original so much is centering around robbing the giant piece of gold out of the bank, we do get another bank robbery scene here, but it would have been far too much of the same if they had just remained in the town. Right. And I think that the setup here is great. First off, I love the scenery. The scenery, the costumes, the music. It is all as good as it was in the first film. I'd go so far as to say I think the costumes are even better in this movie than they were in the first film, and I thought they were really good in the first one. But I love the fact that Amos and Theodore are trying to stay legit. I think that's important for their characters, and I think that if they would have gone back to being your basic criminals that are their own foils... Obviously, it undoes everything that they do in the first movie, but I feel like at that point, you're just taking unnecessary steps backwards. And I also think that's why it makes sense that you would take them out of Quake City and put them into Junction City, at least for a short window of time. Right. And they were also smart to address why they were no longer in New Orleans, because that's where we had left off in the first one was that the Apple Dumpling Gang had come together. They they found their chosen family and they were going to live out Donovan's dream of opening the casino in New Orleans. I would have liked to see it start there just for the scenery alone because the landscape in the opening credits is so beautiful when they're yeah. going through. I know most of this film was shot at the Disney Golden Oak Ranch in California, but they also spent a lot of time filming in Utah. So that's what we see in the beginning, those gorgeous red rocks in the opening credits. I want to talk about once we are into Junction City, because for the most part, I don't think we need to go down character by character because... It, I mean, we've already talked about the first film. Amos and Theodore are obviously, we know them now. They're the focal point. I have to talk about this, Hitchcock. He is gag-inducing immediately. That's the perfect way to put it. I cannot take him seriously. And yet the whole time, I'm trying. To, I'm still trying to figure out whether or not we're supposed to. Yeah, I, I don't know. I... I think they were tr intentionally trying to make him a cheese ball. And, I mean, look, Kenneth Mars, this guy had a hell of a career starring in Mel Brooks films. So he's funny. He is legitimately funny. And I to, to take a, a phrase from the kids nowadays, I don't know if he was trying to be extra or if he was directed to be that way but he's too corny to be tough. Right, and in a Mel Brooks film, you know that it's supposed to be satirical. Here, I don't think it was supposed to be because, yes, even though these are Western comedies, they're not really supposed to be a spoof of a Western. It's supposed to be a Western combined with the slapstick, and that was the success of the first one. Right. This one, I love that we have this iconic comedy duo back 
And, you know, we had talked a little bit about that last week was that we kind of thought this film was going to be the two of them breaking off on their own adventure. So I'm glad that we got that. I just don't really like the new form that it takes. And I think a lot of that was because they had these satirical elements, but they didn't go all the way. Yeah. And I think that I would have liked the film better if really it was it was an hour and 28 minutes of cat and mouse or an hour and 28 minutes of cat and mouse compounded with the added layer of drama that these two are legit. They're trying to prove their innocence. And at every step of the way, they just find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. To me, that's funnier than the unintentional humiliation of Hitchcock that happens over and over and over and over again. When you are in hour one, minute 19, that gag should have been long since retired because we've seen it like five times and it was pretty much unfunny from the second time on. It would be like, and I feel like we reference this movie a lot, but it's okay because it's a classic. It would be like if Marvin Harry got beat up through the entire film in Home Alone as opposed to just the third act when Kevin has the win. Right. I mean, and, and they get beaten up the same. I mean, Home Alone 2 is the same movie as Home Alone 1, except it's in New York. But it works. I mean, it's literally the same exact movie twice, but it works. In this case, none of these gags really work. Well, because I'm saying they don't get beat up for the entire hour and a half. Right. Here, it happens within the first 10 minutes, and it just keeps going on and on and on. And Hitchcock is the one who more often than not finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. In the case of Amos and Theodore... It's a little bit of that, but I like that they keep switching hands to good guy, bad guy. Even though they are trying to stay legit, they keep ending up on the wrong side of it. Right. In spite of their best efforts to not. And that's where them being their own foils works really well. That's where there was so much potential for this to be so funny. And what I really like about it is that it's not just the two of them. A lot of the times they keep getting foiled by Clarice. Yes. That was actually a really funny ad that I wasn't expecting is that she just keeps coming back like a needy dog. Right. Or as, as Theodore called her a hungry pup. Yes. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. Maybe yeah. that's where I subconsciously got that from. No, but it's true. It's, I love that they keep going back to it. That within itself is funny. But I mean, I guess that's where I'm frustrated. Like, that's funny and it works. But you couldn't accomplish the same thing with a very talented actor in Ken Mars. So I think that's where from the first 15 minutes of the movie, you're kind of just like, Oh, man, here we go. You know what I'm saying? And the reason why I bring up Home Alone being the, the, the second movie being the same thing as the first, it's still entertaining. It's, it's formulaic. It's the same movie, but you don't 
care that it's the same movie because it works. In this case, very little of what they tried to make the funniest part of the film works. Right. And even though they do manage to bring Hitchcock full circle, I think part of the problem is that they ingrained him too much in the main part of the plot. This film is almost too layered at times. Yes. Like it's supposed to be convoluted. I get that. But there is just out and out too much going on. And I think maybe if they had left Hitchcock in the first act when they run out of town and then brought him back at the end, it would have been fine. But the fact that he keeps chasing them, that's where it falls apart a little bit because he's just adding too much drama and too much foil. They're already doing a good enough job of foiling themselves. We don't need him in the mix for the entire film. Right. I think that compounded with this plot that has nothing to do with Amos and Theodore with the stolen arms. We'll talk about a little bit of that later, but you're right. It's There's too many layers on top. And, and unfortunately, this little subplot with the stolen arms literally has nothing to do with your title characters. Right. So... I think that that within itself is probably what lends itself to feeling like, as you pointed out, three different movies. Right, because then once we get to the fort is when it shifts the first time and it feels like a totally different film because it becomes a lot more serious. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I understand you're trying to set up You're trying to set up drama at the fort other than these two bozos are just tripping all over themselves and causing problems. But if you're watching a sequel with Amos and Theodore in the military, isn't that kind of what you want it to be? You know what I'm saying? Like, this to me almost should have been like an episode of F Troop. You want to talk about something that took basically the same exact setting with the same slapstick and the same foils and made it work, no one would have punished you or thought less of Disney if that's what they would have done. Right. I I just don't feel like the rest of that was completely necessary. The other thing that makes no sense whatsoever, I can buy the fact that there's an inside man or an outside man, as they call it, um that is tipping off Mac in regards to the army payloads. Mm -hmm. I can buy that. What I can't buy is once Amos and Theodore are brought into the army, because they are are underneath this covered wagon, right? They're hiding. Slightly drunk because the wagon was carrying champagne, which they end up drinking. Because it explodes all over them. I mean... You can't let it go to waste. I wouldn't have done any differently. I would have done the same thing. They have this big gala, this ball, this big party for the officers. Where did all these people come from? I, I don't care where they came from. How did Hitchcock get in? You have this very heavily guarded fort with huge gates, huge walls, soldiers everywhere, night watch, lookout, And apparently, because Gaskill never fails to remind us that Washington is watching him. Hitchcock 
just walks in. It doesn't make any sense. That's what I'm saying. If they just would have left him at Junction City. Yeah. And then let us forget about him for a good while. It would have packed a bigger punch when we run into him in the third act when they're at the saloon and they end up having to don the dresses. Right. The whole the whole notion that he even gets into this fort is ridiculous. The fact that he is so crazed. Yes. And he's so hysterical. That's a thing. Like, it's so overdone. It's not funny. He's just hysterical that he starts opening fire on them inside of a military base. It, to me, comes off as lazy. I feel like it was sort of lazy screenwriting because they just thought, well, if we can get him to go crazy and start trying to shoot at these guys and then he gets tackled... That's funny. And it's not funny at all. No, and usually I do find that sort of thing funny where the villain is harping on it and the good guys keep getting away and you're you're led to believe that it's all or or the other characters are not in on it, so they think it's all in the villain's mind. Yeah. Usually that plays out really well, but I agree with you. I feel like it's it's done just for the shoot 'em up gag and for that one shot at the end where the base is burning down and he like steps out of the flames like he's supposed to be some sort of hero. Yeah. And I feel like they did it all just for that one shot. Fun fact though about that burnt down set. According to Turner Classic Movies, you can still go and see it. They do tours apparently of the Kanab movie fort. In Utah, and that is still standing. Interesting. Well, it would make sense because if you were doing a a period piece where a fort were to be attacked or burned down, rather than have to construct one yourself, no one's going to say, hey, isn't that the fort from Apple Dumpling Gang Rides again? <laughs> um, no, that is very interesting that it's still standing. I think the fact that a lot that any set from this movie is still standing is impressive. No, and it also makes sense. Like in Hawaii, for example, there's the Kualoa Ranch. So it's like if you're shooting in Hawaii, like Jurassic Park, like King Kong. Jumanji. Uh, exactly. It's a one-stop shop and they have everything in a controlled environment. When you think about how much desert there is in the Southwest, it does make it a lot easier that there's just one place to go. Mm-hmm. I want to point something out, actually, because I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about Hitchcock as he gets committed and he kind of, I mean, he literally bashes his head through a window. But it's not even a glass window. It's like a window that's been boarded up. And he just bashes his head through it. And he's like, I'm going to find you. <laughs> like high-pitched giggle. And he's got to be subdued again. Again, I, I think it's meant to get laughs out of the children. And... The movies are so completely different. The only movie to me that really pulled off this manic insanity, this lunacy very well. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? No, because that's meant to be in an insane asylum. I'm talking about you're doing it for the sake of comedy. Well, that's what I'm thinking of is just as we're talking about it, I would have loved to see... Jack Nicholson in this role, even though it was a little bit before the time. No, it's 
to me, it's the assassin at Weekend at Bernie's. When he kills, when he legitimately does kill Lomax the first time. And because the boys have him up on his feet and they're pretending he's not dead, he keeps going back. He strangles him. He stabs him. He shoots him. And then he, all he knows is three hours later, Bernie's walking around again. To me, that's the only film that really did this manic, lunatic, over-the-edge villain who was just so out of his mind, borderline hysterical, but still kept it funny. I think that's the other thing. We don't really see him unravel. It just happens too quickly, which sounds almost crazy to say because we are being so critical of there's too much of him. But I think it does sort of go from zero to 60. Well, because I think the problem is that they, they try too much in exposition to get him manic. He's embarrassed that he hurt his hands in an accidental gunfight. Then he's humiliated that his neck is in a brace because a big swinging bag of money knocked him into a wall. Like, it's just, well, he's embarrassed. You get it. This movie is kind of a lot of see and say. It's a ton of see and say. Speaking of things I find insufferable, let's talk about Millie. Let's talk about Millie. I get it. Trope of a Western. We need the damsel in distress. We need the kidnapping. But oh my goodness, for the one of very few females in this film, especially coming off of Dusty, who is so cool, who is so self-sufficient, who knows exactly what she wants, who gets it done. Now we go to Millie, who hardly has any lines of dialogue except getting mad and and huffing at Reed. Yeah. Uh, Alyssa da- uh, Davalos played her. Yeah, uh, this this character doesn't do it for me. It adds nothing to this story. You didn't even need the love story, really. No, because quite frankly, you could have just had Ravencroft as the inside man, and there's enough drama there because he's supposed to be taking over as the major because Gaskell's been let go. You don't need a love story between Millie and... Ravencroft, you don't need one between her and Reed because Reed, and maybe it's because Tim Matheson plays him. To me, Reed is just an army otter. He's basically the same guy that he is in Animal House. And I don't think that that's him being typecast, but I kind of feel like the direction of this film was she overacts, that's what we want, the -the over-the-top damsel in, in distress. Can Mars do what you did in Mel Brooks, but do it even more so? And people know you as Otter, so be Otter with a mustache. There's just an awful lot here that when you really start to unpack it, really kind of sabotage the film before it even got a chance to get started. Right, and then they go, they bother to do this whole kidnapping, and then all of a sudden... We know that she manages to escape, but we never see her come back to the base. And then yes. all of a sudden, there she is. Yeah, and they're, they're not surprised to see her. It's just like, oh, yep, she's here. You don't get that father and daughter reuniting. Like, if this was Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. Governor Swan obsesses over Elizabeth's safety. Right. There's also no reason why Reed should have or would have kidnapped her. 
he could have just as easily tossed her from this horse and carriage and just taken off. Right. So the, the whole thing is unmotivated. I feel like the only reason why she exists is because they had to have Martha, the blind woman. Yes. Who is friends with Reed slash Phillips, have this heart to heart with her to say, he's not who you think he is. He's a good man. I mean, I really like the Martha character. I like what she does for Reed because I think the one thing that the movie does do well is you don't know, even as he's sort of being exposed as the undercover agent, you don't know if you can buy what Reed slash Phillips is selling. Right. And I think that the, the character Martha helps to sort of flesh him out as the good guy. And not even like the reluctant hero. He's just the good guy. See, I love Martha as a character, and I love that whole little scene. But she may as well be holding up a sign that says, hey, you can trust him. Because that's the whole thing, and that's what makes him appealing, is that there is that back and forth, and you don't know. And she gives us a definitive answer, which you didn't need that early on. Mm-hmm. You don't really need it all because we're going to get it. It totally brings closure in the end. Um, but I, I'm really wondering if they did that for the sake of getting females in this movie other than when they do the gala at the fort, the unmotivated gala. It could be. It could be. Something that I did like in fact, I, I go so far as to say I loved it, was when Amos and Theodore, who we've hardly spoken about, by the way. They're right. the title character. We've hardly spoken about them. And we're halfway through the movie. That's a problem. It's a story problem. It's not a... Not, because the scenes that they're in, it's still comedic genius. Oh, yeah. Conway and Knotts are still awesome. But it is... Without a doubt, a story problem. But what I love is the laundry list of charges. They can't even read the amount of charges to them. All we know is that they're going away hard labor for 30 years. And, I mean, basically when Gaskell goes to read it, it's a book. So what I love about that is they're not only referencing all of the things that they did at the fourth, the night that it burned down, but they're clearly referencing... The first film, and even what happened before the first film. So, like, this is great because you know that they were a part of that gang, and the name escapes me as I'm sitting here. Um, the Stillwell? Stillwell, Stillwell. We know that they were a part of the Stillwell gang, and you know that Stillwell was a savage of a human being. I mean, he was he was truly brutal. I kind of like that we get a peek into their past. I Again, there was so much room for that there and so much room for them to build on this whole, no, we got to be legit. We got to do it the right way. This is our second chance. We got to prove our innocence. It just sinks like a rock. I'm wondering if in Pirates of the Caribbean where they're laundry listing Jack's list of crimes yeah. was supposed to be a nod to this. I, I mean, I've never seen this. This was our first time. I would have never picked up on it. No. Although Jack is a lot more proud than they are. Yeah. Oh, but they are kind of having fun reminiscing about it. 
Yeah. Uh, all they care about is, you know, similar to I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. Well, how's this going to look in the history books? Exactly. So there is a parallel there for certain. This notion that the prison is a hideout, I love this. It makes so much sense. I wish this was the whole movie. Aside from being such a great story point, the set is so cool. Yeah, with the revolving wall, and then they have the tunnels underground and the caves that they're hanging out in. And I just love how Mac, even though I hate I hate that his name is Big Mac because that just makes me think of fast food. I love that he's like, yeah, we're prisoners here when we want to be. Who? I mean, they're not going to lock us up. We're already in jail. The reasoning is incredible. And they even go so far as to say, you know, we're getting we're getting fed. There's a roof over our heads and we can still run our operation. Yeah. And we don't have to pay for anything. It's all bought and paid for. And they don't really have to worry about getting caught because they're already in. Like it's incredible. This and this is, I think, the frustration of the film. Right. This is a great great story this in particular with the jail it's brilliant i think the inside man the drama with the stolen arms i think that was really well done but it doesn't make sense for this movie so like they they do enough right but i mean listen i I love peanut butter and jelly and i like a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, but I'm not going to put peanut butter and jelly on a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. Just because something works doesn't mean it works with this other thing that you think is a good idea. Right. I almost wish that they had started us with Mac and and this meeting in the room and then in a roundabout way bought Amos and Theodore here. Like, you know, tell the two stories parallel and then bring them together. Yeah, I, I think that kind of what you and I are, are honing in on right now is this entire military thing really has no place in this movie. Well, we've already said that Hitchcock doesn't have a place. And I, I did say that there are too many layers here. So if we peel back Hitchcock and if we peel back the military... Then there's only one conflict, and that probably would have dragged on a little bit too much. I'm not saying Hitchcock should be eliminated. I think he should just be dialed back. Right, like out of the middle of the movie. But I'm saying if, if we're removing that and we're removing the military, which is, which is basically your entire second act, you're not left with that much. However, to your earlier point, there is still too much being crammed in here. And very little of it actually has to do with Amos and Theodore. It's called the Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again. Them running from Hitchcock has to do with them. Them being tied up in this train robbery has to do with them. I mean, yes, the train robbery is to steal arms from the military. There's the payload on the train. But everything about those thefts that they focus on so heavily has absolutely nothing to do with them. It's like two minutes of Amos and Theodore screen time for 15 minutes of everybody else. Exactly. So I feel like that's that's where it's like you can remove things. I'm not even going to say so much remove. I think restraint is the better yes. word. I think there's a lot of things here that needed to be restrained. 
Because honestly, to me, the only part of the movie where I where I belly laugh the entire scene is when we get into this saloon. Right. And Knotts and Conway are dressed up as the dancing girls. To me, while they had very funny moments elsewhere, and he got a chuckle out of me, this is the only part where I was really doubled over. And that's where I was pleasantly surprised because I feel like something like this would have been such a novelty for the time and not something that anybody had really seen before. But since then, we've seen it in things like Boy Meets World where Corey and Sean dressed up as girls for one episode to prove some point about something. I forget what. Uh, We've seen it in Mulan where they use it to their advantage to... uh, You know, it plays to the strength of the ending in the animated film. And it's very funny. So because our generation has grown up seeing it before, I wasn't expecting to find it that funny. Um, So I can imagine it packed a punch when this, you know, was first released. But even now, my, my point is it holds up. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I think Ravencroft as the inside man or outside man, because they say it both ways. Um, I, I love it. I think it works. I think it works for a subplot that's not necessary. But I it, I mean, okay, it, it, it does work. But it's not as strong as Hans of the Southern Isles. No. If we're going to go for the whole fake fiancé thing, that... Hans ties in much more to the A story than this does. Well, other than the fact that Anna is one of your main characters, she's a character that you actually care about. If Millie got tossed off a train and we never saw her again, I'd say okay. Right, so I don't care that this guy's lying to her. No. Or that her relationship is a sham. Right. And we're we're rooting for Reed anyway. Yeah. Um... I got to be honest with you. I I don't have a lot left to discuss here. What else do you have? I, I feel like this... You want to talk about a, about a movie that ends kind of abruptly at an hour and 28 minutes. I mean, I don't have anything else. What do you got for me? I mean, I like that we get a classic train robbery scene. I think that was very cool. I think, you know, the train looks cool. It's impressive the way that they're doing all of the stunt work. Um, I think it's a good twist uh, that, you know, after all of that, and you don't necessarily think Amos and Theodore are out of the woods yet, but now it's like, which side are they going to go with? How are they going to get themselves out of this one? So with everything going on and all of these different plot points coming to a head in this one moment on the train, they still manage to not have anything to do with any of these other battles going on. They foil themselves again because of a deal that they made and Clarice comes back into the picture. Yeah. Um. Which in a way, I hate to say it, it almost does feel like this whole film went nowhere because they're still foiling themselves. There's, there's no growth like the first one. And I, I think, you know, part of that is that the children are on this one it certainly doesn't have the charm that the first one did, but I feel like we didn't, for, for the two of them to want to be legit moving forward, I feel like 
we don't get the full character arc. No, because they just go back to the they go back to Donovan's anyway. Right, and it 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 just fell into their lap that it all worked out, mm-hmm. and that they were able to get on the good guy side of it. I will say that at least tied up nicely though, because once Phillips exposes who he really is, he's all by himself, and and he's against a lot of people. So at least. Amos and Theodore sort of get their comeuppance because now they're on the right side of it and they can help him. And uh, again, it just sort of fell into their lap that, oh, well, we knew this was going to happen all along. Mm-hmm. You got anything else? Or is it time for final thoughts? I think it's time for final thoughts. I'll go first. This movie is frustrating. There's some good. There's some bad. And there is some awful. I think, by and large, despite that there were some good twists, I think they wasted a lot of this talent. It's not nearly what the first film was. And I I feel like you got a sequel about Amos and Theodore, and yet, just like the first film... They're secondary characters. I understood that in the first movie. You can't be secondary characters with a secondary plot in your own film. So, this is one that, as much as it pains me to say it because I loved the first one so much, this is one that it's okay to skip. It's not Toy Story 4 bad where I just... Where where I refuse to accept its existence. But if you love the first one, don't watch the second one. I say the same thing about Teen Beach. You love Teen Beach? Don't watch the second one. That's kind of where I'm at with this. The only thing that this has going in its favor when you compare it to something like Teen Beach is that the second Teen Beach film literally undoes everything in the first one, in that final scene. Yep. It's a decent sequel, but that final scene is completely counterintuitive to everything that you've believed in for two movies. Sparkly, rattly do. Oh, my God. And not just the song, but I'm ta- I don't, I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen it or listened to our review. I'm talking about the way that it ended. And keep in mind, Teen Beach jumps in and out of time, jumps in and out of television. It's believable up until that mm-hmm. that moment. Yes. Here, I don't feel like the first film is completely unraveled. I don't think that this film would have benefit, benefit by having Dusty and Donovan and the kids and, and the entire gang riding again. Yeah. Um, but this film is exactly what I expected when you turn on Disney Plus and you see a film from the 70s called The Apple Dumpling Gang that looks like a Western. This is the debacle that I believed the first one was going to be. And last week we sat here and we pretty much ate crow for almost an hour and a half because we were so enchanted by that first one. And it is such a hidden gem 
I was hoping to be just as pleasantly surprised by this one and hoping that since the kids were eliminated from the film, this was going to be a little bit more adult and even more slapstick. It was more adult in that it was a much more serious film. I feel like this was almost geared toward an entirely different audience. Whereas the first one is a family film, this is trying to be aimed at your typical Western-loving crowd. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of great things that this did in theory, but they just didn't pan out at all. Um, And honestly, I am shocked that after this, the Apple Dumpling Gang was still franchised in a way. Yeah, in albeit six episodes of a television show and another made-for-TV movie. But I am glad that the comedic duo of Conway and Knotts survived mm-hmm. long after this. Yeah. Well, you guys can let us know what you have to say about the Apple Dumpling Gang rides again. Have you seen it? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Are you even interested in seeing it at this point? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, Get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet. Whether you are looking for Disney-inspired art prints, stationery, greeting cards, apparel, home decor, whatever it may be, Kelly has you covered. She even does custom work, whether it be a wedding invitation or perhaps an invitation for a special event. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to check her out at Karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com that's karma and kismetdesigns.com so you know i i didn't think i'd be living in a world where national news would be telling you that super glue was not an acceptable substitute for hair gel and just when i thought it can't get any more ridiculous we have the magic band girl, but I, I'm, I'm going to let you explain this because I, I almost can't believe that this really happened. She, she's a, a magic band cyborg girl. That's, <laughs> I, that's, I think, how you have to describe her to people. Well, to be fair, and I did not realize this at first, magic band girl actually has gorilla glue lady beat because this happened back in October, but I believe the story is only starting to gain some traction right now. Apparently, a Disney Uber fan had the magic band chip implanted into her wrist. So where we would go and scan in, and it lights up green and makes the delightful noise that tells us we can now enter the Disney park. She has it in her hand. 
I really don't want to say this, but I'm going to because you just never know. We do not endorse putting magic band chips into your body in any way, shape, or form. We are just reporting on what happened. Yeah, don't try this at home, folks. I mean, this is what... Uh, do you, magic bands now have warnings on them. Think about that for a second. That's the point, is that they were re-released now with this warning. So even though this happened a couple of months ago, I think TikTok is is what's really bringing this story to light. Um, what What boggles my mind more than anything else is that, especially coming out of the pandemic... Why would you want to have anything touch your skin? The magic band, and not that they're using them right now, but the magic band doesn't touch anything. I mean, it it, it touches... It touches the plate, but, but, but the plate does not physically touch you. Right. It's more sanitary than holding your arm up to have this, this thing scanned. And, and what kills me is that they are facing them out. What I can't understand is how her body didn't reject it. I mean, you have people that have surgery that have plates put in or screws, and the body will reject it. Or even tattoos. Right. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't believe this is a thing that we're discussing. And you know there's going to be that copycat, right? That person that didn't learn their lesson, because you're seeing it now with the Gorilla Glue people. Now you have copycats to it. I, I mean, I, I question your intelligence level. Uh, you shouldn't be doing it, but you know somebody is going to copycat this thing, right? I mean, please, if, if, you are, if you are a friend of the show, I just beg, please don't let it be you. Don't be the one <laughs> that leads to second warning labels on magic bands or whatever it is that comes after the magic band. Just please, I, I beg you not to do it. Yes, don't be the next reason we have to say what the February yeah, I mean, this is very on brand for what the February. Uh, okay, <laughs> moving on from that, we have some new artwork from Cruella, the Emma Stone-led Cruella DeVille film that's coming out on May 28th. And supposedly, we are getting a trailer drop tomorrow as of the time of this recording. So it sounds like we're getting a trailer drop on Wednesday, February 17th. I'm really excited at the prospect of this. I, I've been lulled into a false sense of security, uh, a false sense of security before with, we're getting a trailer drop, Ghostbusters, and it doesn't happen. Well, we're getting it tomorrow, and it doesn't happen. I remain cautiously optimistic, but I'm excited to see what they show us. This is coming from the source. According to Disney, we are getting this trailer. But this little tease from this artwork made me so excited. And I think, not that I wasn't excited for this movie, but I think, you know, after the year that we've had with films getting pushed back and now the release to streaming and charging premium, I think I've become a little bit jaded. This is the first time in a while I'm getting really excited to see a film. Moving on to a little Disney Plus news. 94.9 million subscribers. Wow. This should not surprise us. But I, I wanted, like, where are you finding these people? <laughs> I, I <laughs> yeah, guess, who I doesn't guess, have it yet? I guess as 
as the as the uh, program or as the app is or service, whatever you want to call it, the service I suppose is the proper term. As it's now launching in other countries and new markets, that's where you're pulling people from. But I mean, it, it should not surprise us at this point. But I think the sheer number of people versus what they had projected for the first five years, the fact that I mean, we're here. It blows me away every time the number goes up. Well, I think that there are two variables that they were not expecting. I think that, of course, your diehards were immediately going to go for Disney+. Plus. There was no question that you're mm-hmm. going to subscribe to the entire library. I think the casual Disney fan or the average moviegoer thought that they were not going to care that much. I think once the original content started... And then you get the word of mouth on social media. I think that's what people weren't expecting. And the two variables that I'm talking about are the Mandalorian and WandaVision. Yeah. And and being locked in your house for a year. Well, that. (laughs) But I think that because so many people were cutting the cord, I really thought that this episodic viewing experience was really going to go down with things like Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. I thought those were really like the last two like cultural icons mm-hmm. that everybody, you know, that's everyone's talking about and you have to see it. Like I remember when we were kids, the big thing was TGIF. To me, if you didn't go home on Friday night and watch the lineup and then you went to school Monday morning and you didn't see Boy Meets World or Full House or Family Matters, whatever it was. It's like you had nothing to say. And the more that things have evolved and the more content we're getting, it's fewer and far between that a show can gain traction like that where everyone is watching. And I really thought that streaming was going to kill that sort of a buzz that you get from everybody having that commonality of falling in love with a show. And I love that Disney Plus has now successfully proven that wrong twice. Mm -hmm. We also got new episodes of Inside Pixar this week, but I think the thing that people are most excited about coming to Disney Plus, Marvel Studios Assembled. These, we we have waxed poetic time and time again about Disney Plus, show me behind the scenes, show me featurettes, show me making of, because these are the things that we're going to miss when there are no more Blu-rays and DVDs. Because unfortunately, and I disagree with it, that is the direction in which we are heading. But the making of WandaVision... That's the first episode. It drops on March 12th. This entire series is behind the scenes of the MCU, whether it be on television or in film. You're seeing it with the gallery. They're doing it for Mandalorian. We're getting the peek behind the curtain with shows like the Imagineering story. This, to me, this is the most exciting part about Disney+. Plus. I mean, yes, I love Mando. Yes, I love WandaVision. And I love having that eclectic library of films at my fingertips, this is what I'm living for right now. Yeah, this is what we came for. Mm -hmm. We're also going to learn what we are showing up for in the future 
And that is going to be the virtual Disney upfronts on May 18th. That's when, if I, if I understand this correctly, this is where you start marking your calendar. These are where you start making your future plans. Exactly. Most, I, I mean, the major networks do them every single year. So I was kind of surprised to see that they were doing one for Disney Plus. But I guess if they're putting everything under the Disney umbrella, ABC, Hulu, it's certainly worth doing. So I think that what we're going to see with Disney is a lot of those things that got announced on Investors Day are going to have hard dates attached to them if they are, in fact, coming out this fall. Some of those things I know were bigger picture down the line. You know, this whole phase four of Marvel, that's just going to keep going for a couple of years. But I think that we're going to get some more specific release dates for titles in this in the fall. Mm -hmm. And you guys can let us know what you are the most excited about on uh during the the virtual upfront, or perhaps you can let us know whether you are super excited about Assembled, or whether it's Inside Pixar, whether it's the Cruella trailer. Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys for joining us this and every week here on the program. Don't forget, monorealradio.com is the home to Every episode of the show links to all of the social media, the emails. I mean, look, you can find us on your podcast platform of choice. We're really bad at hide and seek. We're just about everywhere. Please, if you get the chance, subscribe, rate, and review the show. We love hearing from you guys. Share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. Thank you guys so much for joining us again. We've got one more What the February movie coming up, and it is based on... A beloved Disney attraction. And we've already done Haunted Mansion. So I'm pretty sure you all just figured out exactly what we're going to be doing next week. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs>